And welcome back. We are such nerds. I'm your ringleader for tonight, Peter, and I've been lying about my nuclear weapons arsenal. Boys, why don't you introduce yourselves for our listeners? Hi, this is Jason from Hartford, and I am marvelous, truly marvelous. And I'm Russ from Montclair, and I'm super excited to talk about Dune. I mean, uh, Foundation. (laughs) We're on the Foundation podcast. Yeah, for our listeners who are just tuning in, uh, we will have many digressions, unfortunately, to the Dune series more than likely. I'd just like to clarify that this is not a Star Wars podcast for those. If you're here for the Star Wars podcast, you clicked on the wrong link. So uh, try again. We are many, many, many episodes away from the Star Wars podcast. So tune in long enough and you'll probably hear them. Russ, why don't you give us a recap from what we went over last week? Okay, we're recapping on part one, which is the Psychohistorians. We see that character Gail Dornick travels to Trantor. He is going to work with the famous Hari Seldon, who is known as the Raven, a renowned mathematician. We see that within the, the first day of arriving that Gail and Hari get together and they both are arrested because Hari has been pushing a treasonous plan that, or an idea that the empire will fall within the next 300 years. And the government feels that he is creating unrest. So they sentence him to be exiled to Terminus. And in the sentencing, Hari is able to negotiate that the several hundred thousand people that have been working with him to create this galactic encyclopedia uh, should travel there with him to Terminus to complete their project. He while pushes this narrative that the empire is about to fall within 300 years, that their work that they are currently doing needs to continue. And so Terminus is the planet in which they can continue that in exile. Um, We also are acknowledging that the um, empire is aware of this idea on Trantor. And we see that, um, their negotiation with this sort of reveals a a bit of an understanding that uh, they are ready to prepare for this in some way. So the goal of the encyclopedia is to do what exactly, Russ? The goal is to collect all human knowledge to keep it safe from the fall. And Hari believes that the fall of mankind will lead to anarchy and chaos and everything being destroyed. And so this is a preservation project to maintain all human knowledge so that post-apocalyptic time, people still have access to all the previously learned knowledge. Right. Effectively shortening the period of darkness, right? Exactly. Okay, great. Um, So that was pretty great, Russ. Jay, looks like we got some fan mail from last week. Uh, you want to yes. go ahead and open up that uh, that letter for us? Yeah. From so our one uh, yeah, actually, there's so there's a few uh, a few I'll I'll call them fan comments. I don't know if it's we don't really. I mean, none of this came by snail mail, but but yeah. So there's some apparently there's some folks who uh, have some questions for us out there, and uh, you know we've uh, you know we've done a job to change the names to protect the innocent. But uh, I can say that all of these 
um, questions were written by uh, a real person for sure. So we've gotten some things in from, uh, um, you know, from folks who have listened to our first episode and, uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll lay it out there. So the first one is from, uh, jonesing for a break from nonfiction and they say, wow, love the tunes. Who is the amazing band or musician that you had write those wicked riffs for you guys? Uber jealous. I wish I could play like that. So, so Jason, why don't you tell them who wrote those? I, okay. Wicked... All right. I'll take this one. So, uh, so yeah, firstly, you know, thank you very much for the, uh, for the props. We really appreciate it. Um, we do like the tunes. Um, they are actually, uh, written by myself, but I can't claim full credit because my, uh, my young son did, uh, generate the keyboard riff that, uh, created the kind of anchor for our intro and, uh, um, a good, uh, I'll say, uh, a good friend and relative has provided uh, our vocals uh, to add a little life to the to the music there. So, uh, so thank you for that question. Um, the next one, should I keep going? Yeah, definitely. Keep okay, going. all right. Yeah, there's a few more here. So this is Todd Gold. Right here. All right. So the uh, the next question. Uh, this is for. Uh, I think this is for Russ, but uh, you, you guys tell me if uh, if Russ is the right one to answer this. So this is from Dreading, spelled D-R-E-D-D-I-N-G, episode two, if Russell doesn't explain his fascination with Judge Dredd. And they ask, Russ, can you explain your fascination with Judge Dredd? So why don't you take it away, Russ? Oh, where, I mean, it's, it's, such a, a deep rabbit hole. Where do I begin? Let's um, let's just first start with the actual original Stallone movie that uh, I watched as a young child. Um, and my fascination with it merely just pivoted on the point of somehow it had popped into my head uh, about the city walls that uh, we were talking about. It's very similar to like a, a total recall um style environment, but actually had played judge dread in Sega. If you guys remember, it was a Sega Genesis game and it was pretty wicked because you were the judge, the jury and the executioner. And there's nothing better than a Stallone. I am the law. I am the law. I mean, you, you can use that meme. It's ubiquitous. It's a, it's a very robust um, platform that I feel I, I can use throughout my entire life. So I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing the memeing of, of Stallone and dread. Perfect. Love it. So let's uh, get into this week's chat. Hold on. Hold on. Section. I think, you know, oh, we got more. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. We got, uh, we got some additional ones. Um, this one. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think uh, I'll let you guys figure out who, who should answer this one. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not me, but uh, this is from hypnotized dot, dot, dot. And they ask, Peter, can I hire you to record yourself reading all of my favorite books? Yes, I'd be happy to do that for the exchange of food or money. <laughs> I also take favors of any style. <laughs> 
there's more fan mail. There's just so many fans out there. <laughs> so many. So many. With of a, our 26 I can't even downloads. say it without laughing. I can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> well, I appreciate our, our, um, our 26 listeners who have yeah. actually taken the time to <laughs> comment on the web zone, as it yeah. were. So, so why don't yeah, we, no, uh, kick you it know, we, we, uh, yeah, to be fair, we, uh, we are just getting going here and, uh, there have been a few, uh, a few downloads of our initial episodes. So hopefully we'll get some momentum and, uh, maybe we will be drowning in fan mail, but, uh, that is the, uh, the end of the list for today, Peter. So yeah, we can move forward. And that wraps up our wonderful fan mail. So I'd like to thank our three listeners for writing in this week. Jason, why don't you give us a rundown of what we are getting into this week all right so yeah so the the section is called the encyclopedists and uh no surprise it is about the kind of the future after exile to terminus and so we start the second section 50 years after harry selden's trial and at the end of the first section and there is now not just a couple hundred thousand, but the population of about a million people on Terminus, uh, basically in one big city on a relatively habitable planet without that many resources. They are uh, mostly doing non-encyclopedia-related work, although there is still a core group of uh, scientists working on the encyclopedia, led by a council. Um, they have finally agreed to set up a local um, administrative, uh, I'll say, political municipality or something to that effect where uh, where they have now uh, established a, a mayor position uh, in parallel with this council of the foundation. The mayor is Salver Hardin, and he becomes our new point of view character for the section He's what I would call an ambitious politician, uh, but he's also pretty savvy and is one of the few people on the planet uh, that actually had studied psychology or psychohistory, um, unlike everybody else who had nothing to do with psychohistory. Uh, during the course of the section, it becomes pretty clear that the Galactic Empire is shaky at best and the periphery has clearly factioned. The local or nearby prefect of Anacreon uh, has made a threat of colonizing Terminus. And after an empty promise from the Empire to quote unquote protect Terminus, um, Hardin recognizes that uh, that threat is meaningless and he can't rely on the council to take the necessary action to protect the population of Terminus. So there's, uh, there's kind of two key uh, ticking clocks happening at the same time. One is a threat from Anacreon that puts kind of a clear timeline on their plans to uh, establish uh, a colony on Terminus and divide up the land for their nobles. And at the same time, there's a planned opening of a digital vault uh, from which the uh, at least the council uh, is planning to hear a message and instructions from Harry Selden, knowing that he had, uh, you know, a sense of what was going to happen, but apparently didn't tell anybody. They are hoping that he will offer the solution to their ills. 
And we get to see the end of that at the end of the chapter, right? Yes. Yeah. I didn't want to um, overexpose right here at the beginning. Uh, maybe, you know, take it easy for no. now and work up to it uh, by the end of the pod. So I think that's great. Now, this uh, I'd like to go a little bit more into this Harden character. He's a he's really, really savvy. He's probably the smartest dude on Terminus as far as I'm concerned. Um, so when they get this threat from Anacreon, Russ, why don't you tell him uh, what he comes up with to kind of keep these guys off, you know, staved at bay. They don't have any defenses. They don't have any resources. They can't bribe these guys. What does he do? Well, I think it's worth mentioning that he's aware or he's, there's a big difference that's put out there about him as opposed to scientists and how he interacts with people where the, it's pretty clear that the scientists just want the answers where Harden goes in and he actually talks to the people trying to ferret out what their plans are. So there's a couple mention there. There's a couple instances where you see the scientists be like, you know, stop talking. Why would you bring that up? And he sort of reveals that he's trying to get these visitors to show their cards as to, you know, why they're there. Um, and so we have one instance where he mentions that this is a planet that does use nuclear power. And this apparently is not something that's being used in the periphery, these, these cluster of uh, planets on the outside of the galactic empire. And so that sparks interest in this visitor that they could potentially have things like nuclear weapons, although they don't and their nuclear reactors old um, it definitely sparks some intuition that's or a game that's being played by Harden that the other scientists can't see what's happening. Right. So Harden makes the threat of nuclear retaliation in a very veiled way to the Anacreon envoy, a guy named Hot Roderick. Roderick. Hot Roderick. I'll get it right one of these days, guys. Um, and yeah, the scientists freak out. They're like, we don't have any nuclear weapons. Why would you say that? He goes, I know we don't have any nuclear weapons, but they don't know that we don't have nuclear weapons. I'm buying us time so that we can make nuclear weapons because we have this knowledge. We have the means. And I think it's interesting that the periphery, the implication is that they had some kind of nuclear power at one point, but they ran out of resources or the know-how to keep them running. So now they're back to coal and gasoline, I think they actually refer to in the in the novel. Yeah, uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, which is, is definitely a sign of the times that this was written. That and the massive consumption of tobacco in its many forms by everybody. <laughs> So, uh, Jay, why don't you uh, take a hit of some snuff yeah, for us? Yeah, exactly. And so, go into <laughs> what happens next? That's a good, good, uh, good segue, Peter. So, I think there, there's some, some, a few things to unpack there. Um, first of all, yeah, he's pretty clever about asking leading questions, and he um, he asks a question of uh, of this Anacreonian representative of. You know the new Anacreonian king about their um, 
I can't remember. I think it's plutonium, right? He asked them if they have plutonium to help them uh, fuel their reactor. And he gets like, yeah, he gets this like wide-eyed response. And then, yeah, it's actually, you know, then he explains afterward to uh, to Pyrene, who Pyrene, we didn't mention Pyrene, but he's he's like his antagonist, right? He's this the council member who's so like irritated with politics and he just hates Harden and he has no patience for him whatsoever. So anyway, he 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 does this in front of Pyrene and then Pyrene's given him, you know, the evil eye, like, why are you telling them we have nuclear power? And he's like, well, I was trying to find out if they have nuclear capabilities and they basically showed their hand because they would have known if they had nuclear capabilities that it's not plutonium that you need, it's uranium or what I can't remember if I'm getting this right, which, which one or the other. And then he talks about how, then he gives us a sense of, uh, you know, how long into the future this is happening, right? He said, he cites the uh, dawn of atomic power was 50,000 years ago, right? And so we get this, uh, this kind of time frame now sensibility that, that from today, we're thinking of this universe 50,000 years from now. And uh, yeah, exactly. The first thing that came to my mind, Peter, was like, in the last 50 years, tobacco has basically almost gone extinct, right? And yet, 50,000 years into the future, um, you know, Salver Hardin is all over these vegan tobacco cigars, and Lord Dorwin, without his R's, still manages to, you know, partake in snuff throughout his visit. And, uh, you know, everybody's like, you know, all about this tobacco and even, uh, Roddick, uh, the representative from hot Macra. Rod. Yeah. Hot Rod. He's um, so hot. <laughs> he, uh, convinces Harden to give him a cigar, even though Harden doesn't want to, cause he wants, wants him so not to be wasted yeah. on an Anacreonian. But, uh, how is vegan tobacco regular, like different from regular or carnivorous tobacco? I don't know what carnivorous tobacco would look like. Does it eat you or are you like eating an animal <laughs> that is also tobacco? Well, and again, this is like this is from like the 40s that this idea of so vegan may not really have represented then what it does now to us as a kind of a dietary regimen. Um, Wait until and, you guys read my fanfic with all the vaping that's going on in it <laughs> for, for 10,000 years in the future. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's, again, it's the going back to we talked about this a little bit last time is like we have to give a little bit of cut them a little bit of slack. Right. And if we want to enjoy the story, we can't, you know, we have to be a little bit generous that he couldn't necessarily, you know, predict 50 to 70 years out from when he wrote it. So, uh, but we can still try to enjoy the, the idea, right? Yeah. But, but maybe this, this, you could frame it along the lines that uh, one of Hardin's biggest uh, issues is that it, everything's been stagnant. The... Galactic Empire is stagnant, so maybe you can think about it. Yeah, it's been 50,000 years since nuclear fuel, and maybe that's because it satisfied their fuel requirements. And so why look for anything else if what you have works? If it's, you know, don't fix it if it's not broke. 
I mean, it goes deeper than that too, right? The whole point of the encyclopedias is that they are archiving known knowledge. They're not making new knowledge. There's no studying. There's no progression. They're literally just taking old ideas and putting them in one place. And like Hardin seems to resent that on a fundamental level. Yeah, I think probably to to talk about that. That's like the source of that that, that tension, right? I think between those two characters. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting like excited about. Yeah, this is uh, I want. This is the kind of stuff I want to you know dig into. And you're right. He explodes on the council um, because they think nothing of it, uh, but he sees it as wrong. And you're right on a fundamental level. But to get there, we have to go through this experience, right? So he has to, you know, have this encounter to frame it, where Lord Dorwin comes and visits the planets and planet, and he's uh, he's this kind of snooty. Um, speaks without pronouncing his R's, right? Um, Unless he gets excited, then all of a sudden he speaks normally, I guess, uh, Hardin points (laughs) out. Uh, And then so he's trying to, like, put on airs with this accent of, you know, I'm, you know, so special and I speak differently or whatever. Um, But he he goes through this um, moment where he's, like, getting on his on his soapbox a little bit about uh about his you know subject of study and uh, what was it archaeology right that's his uh his bag uh and and it's not really i mean archaeology is not really important per se but the whole setup is that he starts talking about how he studies archaeology and what he does is he reads the books of people who studied archaeology, and then he evaluates their writings against each other to come to his conclusion. And when Hardin challenges him on that and says, well, why do you know that it comes from planet X, Y, or Z? Why don't you go personally to visit planet X, Y, and Z and and study for yourself, you know? And he was like, oh, that's like, how how crude, you know, and he says, how crude or whatever, um, that, uh, you know, why would I redo the work that these experts, you know, from so long ago had already done? Like, I can just read their books and, you know, so you're right. It's this idea that, like, nobody's using their brain and creating kind of new information or new knowledge they're just kind of leeching off of the existing supply of knowledge um, to recreate the same knowledge, basically, right? Hardin resents the idea that these people aren't experiencing anything firsthand. They're not making anything on their own. For example, the Afant, you know, uh, man with the speech impediment, he reads meta analyses and then makes his own meta analyses based off of that without actually considering the original work. It's just layers of stagnation on top of each other without new original thought being contributed. And that's probably what's leading to the death of the empire. Or at least Russ, what do you think about at that? least an effect of the death of the empire, right? Like that people are right. just forgot how to do stuff. They're just little robots, right? Russ, how do you feel about this? What do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious that the underlying theme is that there hasn't been any innovation. And, you know, again, I, I, as soon as I saw, you know, 50,000 years in the future and the best they could do was nuclear fuel, like they couldn't come out with some renewable resource that required zero, you know, like they found a way to break the laws of thermodynamics and have a, just a continual feedback loop of energy. It was like, I had to get over that and be like, oh man, like that's just not creative at all. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it totally makes sense. Like, yeah, it's stagnation. And I, I, this goes back, I, we talked about this the last podcast, but you know, with the influence that leads to that theme, you know, what, what was happening or, you know, what influenced his, his perception of this? I would, I would, I'm always curious to know what, what gets writers to be creative about something or what do they base that off of? Um, so I, you know, if, if I could ever go back and ask him, I'd surely be interested to know why he emulates this. I think it probably had something to do with a major world event. You might've heard of it. It was called world war three. Well, I'd like to remind our listeners out there that, uh, you know, there were many empires out there that, that fell over the, the, the time and, you know, a world war <laughs> wasn't the only war that experienced <laughs> empires that fell just to, just to make sure our potters out there know what's going on. I feel like you are, uh, you're only making that conjecture based on another source that has actually looked at the history directly versus looking at the history directly yourself for us. Are you accusing Russ of using a meta analysis? I to think come you're up using a meta analysis. He's just regurgitating exactly. things that he's already heard. <laughs> it, it, I mean, at one time in my life, I did read The Rise of Alexander by Plutarch. So I feel like I have at least one instance of an empire that rose and fell. Yeah, but were you in that empire when it rose and fell? That's I mean, what I the, the way that Plutarch writes it, I feel like I'm right there next to Alexander. You've got sand in your sandals. But that's like 300 BC. Alexander only lives to be, I think he's like, he only lives to be, what, 30? Yeah, like, Tw- I want to say he's like 34, maybe. Yeah, it's like 300 BC is when, when it takes place, that time, or either that's when he's born and he dies in like 334, something like that. Yeah, but yeah, that's the only other instance I know of an empire rising and falling. So yeah, I I, re- I really have a limited scope on yeah, and on we actually don't like even that. know if that really happened, right? Because we nobody there, there's it, no it's living a book. witnesses. It was no written in a book. Witnesses. Yeah, there's no living yeah. witnesses. Yeah. yeah. Well, then how do we even know it's true? Exactly. Which Texture is why we all that's happen. why we have to rely on World War II as the crooks of all things that happened after World War II because it's the only real major war that we have like you know sufficient living witnesses that we can interview other all the other things that people talk about that happened before world war ii is probably mostly conjecture and and you know folk tales and myths and things like that all right now that you've gaslit like the whole of human history <laughs> maybe we can move forward with this conversation a little bit. Yeah, probably. So yeah, I think it is. I think it is, I think it is uh, bizarre that they haven't come up with some kind of like you know gravity well technology that they 
have harnessed to make limitless energy. Uh, I mean, you got to remember that when this book was written, nuclear power was brand new, Mm -hmm. right? It was written in the, it was written in the fifties and then consolidated essentially in the sixties to a single novel. Um, so that, you know, again, that gives you a time frame for why are they smoking cigars and not vaping? And why is nuclear power like it's such an impressive feat? And these other periphery, which for our listeners are the outer colonies around the outside of the galaxy, far from the center of the universe, which is where the empire is run. Why are they using coal and wood-burning stoves, essentially, to run their cities? Yeah, and I think the other, I mean, another part of that is Anacreon talks about, or the the guy from Anacreon is shocked when he comes to Terminus. You have no peasantry? Like, where are your, you know, poor, illiterate, you know, working class that that the nobles, you know, reap their... (laughs) their benefits from exploiting. I think that's a, that's a good segue, Jay. Um, I mean, the majority of the populace on Terminus is not involved in the cyclopedia effort. What are they doing? Farming food, I think. Right. And, uh, you know, supporting the, I'm imagining it's a little bit better than like a, you know, mining village, but, you know, enough people put enough people together, and somebody opens a saloon, and you know has a, you know, a dog fighting ring, or a, you know, a card, a weekly card game, or you know, somebody's making gin in their bathtub. Somebody's I'm, I'm sorry, did we just jump to a dog <laughs> ring? In in what world is that the fall of events for how society fills I, out? So I was stepping off from a mining village, so it was, uh, I thought of you know. Those what poor it, miners. White, White Fang or whatever it was. Uh. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, okay. so it's just it's bizarre to me that they present um, Terminus as this basically resourceless planet, right? It, um, it, it obviously has some kind of resources, right? Even if it's kind of naturally occurring nutrients in soil. Um they say, like, I don't know. It's not industrial resources, right? It yeah, they're not industrial. Like, yeah, yeah. But they were even saying that they lack even iron yeah. as a resource. And so the uh, the Anacreon guy was like, well, you've got land, and we can divide up that land and use that as, as your resource. Like, you just have space that we can give people property rights. We can right. make little fiefdoms out of or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, and there, but there. So I think uh, you know you're you're edging on a little bit of kind of the the climax at the end of this section, um, and uh, you know the the they're edging closer and closer to this you know uh, crisis right uh, through right. the course of this uh, section, and they think you know especially the council believes that everything hinges on the encyclopedia. It's the direction from Harry Selden and his you know, in his organization is to establish um, the 
uh, you know, the, the encyclopedia and to publish it. And this is the, what's going to protect man from the extended fall. And so they're all like hyper focused and, you know, late or laser, what's the latest buzzword is like laser focused on encyclopedia related activities. Right. And everything is rotates or no, uh, everything, um, hinges on the success of this encyclopedia. So when, even when uh, Dorwin comes, it's like all about showing him the encyclopedia and he's so impressed and these readings and whatnot. Um, and Hardin's there the whole time saying like, you guys are blind. You're so focused on your encyclopedia. You're not paying attention to this. You're not paying attention to Anacreon creeping on our, our sovereignty. You're not paying attention to the galaxy. Can't do anything about it. Um, and, you know, you're going to let the people down. And so close to the end, we get a flavor of Hardin, you know, has it has more savvy than we than we realize at the beginning. He owns the newspaper or he at least influences the newspaper. Um, and he has like a whole kind of support network of of or a party, if you will, that um allows him to kind of wield some degree of, of power, even right. though he doesn't have an explicit, you know, role in the foundation. Right. Yeah. He, uh, we find out he, he doesn't own the newspaper directly, right. He's smart enough to not do that. And then he manages to worm his way into the council to like the begrudging compliance of the scientists and uh, going back to our visit from our imperial ambassador, the scientists all feel great after his visit. But what does Harden realize? Yeah, he he uh, he does like a, like a legal. He solicits one of the scientists from the Encyclopedia Foundation to do a like a legal analysis on the treaty between the empire and Anacreon and he this is the founding treaty, right? The, the, um, say it again. This is the founding treaty. This is not some kind of new treaty, right? This is the thing that establishes terminus as no, 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 no. Terminus. He, he, uh, no, there's two, there's two things he has analyzed, right? At least two. I know one of them is because they're uh, they're concerned about Anacreon infringing on Terminus's sovereignty, right? And they know that that Dorwin announces he's like, well, we have established a treaty with Anacreon or whatever, and uh, he offers to give them a copy, so they get a copy of this treaty, and uh, and the, and Harden has it analyzed by one of the encyclopedia scientists. And he does a logic analysis so that he can communicate the message to the board, who are all these academics. And basically, the construction of the symbols at the end of the analysis indicates that the galaxy has uh, has no uh, power over Anacreon, and they have uh, required nothing of them. And Anacreon has committed nothing to the Empire. They basically are basically empty documents that have no hard commitments. And then the other thing he has analyzed is he's recording Dorwin the whole time he's there and he hands over the transcript, has that analyzed and the transcript winds up 
completely canceling out. Everything gets canceled out because there's nothing of substance in anything Dorwin has said the entire time he's at Terminus. I found the exact line, coincidentally. Lord Darwin, gentlemen, in five days of discussion, didn't say one damn thing and said it so that you never noticed. There are the assurances that you had from your precious empire. Yep. He's lit. And I like that in 50,000 years, the swear words are consistent with, you know, the 20, 20th century. <laughs> there is zero language drift. That's how much they've stagnated. <laughs> There is no incorporation of new words. Exactly. Although there is one major one that jumped out at me, and it's great space. Yes. <laughs> Apparently there, everyone is atheist in the future. There is no spirituality, but there is a belief in space. There's there's a couple like subtle, like, um, you know, like a heaven forbid. It's like space forbid. Yeah. Yeah. Either that or Isomoff was afraid to blaspheme. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, and then it's almost I'm like an atheism, but that's just bad. Yeah. Or, or uh, I, I don't know if it's like, uh, we, we could go down a real bunny trail here, but yeah. the whole idea of atheism presupposes theism, which, you know, it's, it's more, uh, maybe it's more non theism. Like there's just no sense of a, of a higher power, right? It's not like they're against religion or against, you know, believing in God. There's just is no, it's just, it's drifted away. Like nobody recognizes like the idea of higher power maybe, but yeah, you're right. It's like spaceman. Don't you get it? <laughs> it's like, great. It is great. A, great space. But yeah, so there's a big blow up, right? Harden is freaking out at the council and it is brought to his attention by um, a man named Farin. Farah? Farah. Farah. Right. He's, he's described as a great, like a large man who is soft. And um, Harden is kind of astounded that he could be as big as he is. Uh, he's, he mentions, he goes, um, the, the timing is fortuitous. The 50-year celebration is going to coincide with uh, that Harden's been trying to get going, by the way. He's trying to make a big party, trying to establish some kind of uh, planetary or national unity around this event, which the scientists are poo-pooing because they don't want anything to be associated with or detract from the encyclopedia effort. Um, but we find out that on year 50, uh, Harry Seldon's got a little message for us. that's going to be popping up. And uh, Farah thinks that maybe the key to their solving their problems might be in this uh, reservoir of knowledge from the past, right? Which is very in keeping with their belief system. The yeah. past will have all the answers. Yeah, and so it, like the this is probably I think that uh Asimov did a job, you know, a good job building even more tension in this section than the previous section where he's actually got these kind of two um you know, he's really building towards a crisis 
um, he's got these these two things happening, right? There, the council's just wants everybody to sit tight and wait till Harry Selden speaks, right? Put all your faith in Harry Selden, and then uh, Salver Harden is saying we can't rely we can't rely on Harry Selden. We can't trust Harry Selden. I can't trust the council. I got to take action. There's a million people here. We got to think for ourselves. And he's really kind of this kind of entrepreneurial almost, uh, but in a political, on the political side. We call those revolutionaries. Revolutionaries. Okay. All right. Um, so he, uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's a man of action. And what action is he going to take, Russ? What's Harden planning? He is planning to overthrow the. Uh, sitting panel board of trustees so that um, there's a transition of power. They'll no longer be making decisions for Terminus. So they're about to lose their authority one way or another. It's, it's kind of what Harden is thinking. And Harden wants to be in control and protect the planet, essentially. I guess he's a first-generation Termini. I'm not sure what you would call a person of Terminus. Is he first-generation? Maybe he is, yeah, because he's younger than 50 probably. Yeah, it's been about 50 years, right? Yeah. So he was probably but born But he studies up. under the only other psychologist that was brought to Terminus. Right. right. He's got psych, he's a psychologist, but never fully uh, indoctrinated. But he did mm-hmm. study under the one psychologist that was allowed on Terminus. Right. And th- that psychologist was very cagey, if I recall correctly. Apparently, yeah, didn't, didn't teach too much to his pupils. Yeah, and he wanted to. He kept it close to the chest, which uh, it sounds like this psychologist was uh, trained by Harry Selden in one way or another to kind of be this intermediary governor of some sort in the background. That was the vibe that I got from this uh, particular section. So, do we want to go into the the big reveal? Yeah, here, I, I think before, but yeah, maybe before we do that, um, I think there's a few other things that I just wanted to bring up because it ties back to some of our discussion last time. And this is for Russ, but uh, I think you were uh, kind of on the the train of thinking that war was inevitable and um, that it was going to be like all about war and all about conflict. And I just wanted to... Uh, kind of prime you uh, and see if you had any follow-up thoughts on that after reading this next section. Yeah, I still think that uh, war is is eminent. I mean, whether it be civil war or um, actual interactions with other planets, planetary forces. But yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like if a coup isn't happening then surely the Anacreons coming on will want conflict. So, yeah, I think it's inevitable. Were you not... War never changes. (laughs) Could this be the next opening to the Fallout video game? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) War. War never changes. I was uh, I was thinking maybe uh, that uh, I mean the, there's one line in here that kind of hit me I wasn't sure if it hit everybody else the same way but um, you know there's a, a conversation uh, where Harden is talking about 
um, you know, risk of conflict. And he says, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. But I certainly don't intend to lay it down the welcome mat and brush off the best furniture for their use when he's talking about Anacreon coming to set up a military base. And I thought that was pretty powerful, like that that's kind of a core tenet of his of his thinking um, and uh, that his effort is really to not to create war, but to avoid war. Did you guys not get that same vibe? No, I, I I certainly got it. It sounded as if he was prepared for it, but it was not his first instinct to resolve this this issue, was not to go immediately to war. I took it maybe even a step further to say that, you know, the proper or skilled statesman... Um, are successful when they resolve their issues by navigating away from conflict or away from violence. Hmm. So I don't know. I think I have high hopes for, uh, Salver Harden. I think he, uh, he comes across as like ambitious and, and sly, but I think in the end he's trying to accomplish something positive. Some kind of noble goal, right? He's yeah, trying it seems to, like it. At, at the very least, protect his people on Terminus. Do we think protect all of Termini? Do Termini. we think that he's going to make it to the end of the end of the book? I don't know. I mean, we lost our first POV character after the first section. Gal. Real quick. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was super boring. He yeah. <laughs> literally, our he, slack-jawed, yeah. wide-eyed protagonist for introducing us to this bizarro world right but i kind of expected to see him like even a glimpse of him but nope that dude's probably dead it's 50 years in the future but he was an essential backdrop for you know learning the harry selden story yeah i mean he was the catalyst to the events right that that was the trigger that made terminus happen for Mm. harry selden yeah so in that sense he's important but he's also mad boring. <laughs> it was mediocre at best. Well, things are coming to a head in Terminus. Uh, we have revolution brewing on the inside. We have invasion threatening from the outside. And in the middle, we have a message from Harry Selden, 50 years from the past, to be open tomorrow. And we will be getting into that next time. We have been such nerds, and I've been your ringleader, Peter, along with Jason. And Russ. And we will see you next time.